us, which I guess raises the question, what is your story? If you were given a moment or two just to share what your journey of faith has been, what would you share? This morning we bring our fall series, Rescue, to a close. Six weeks ago, we began to focus on the difference that Jesus desires to make in a person's life. How Jesus rescues us, brings us to experience life in personal ways with him. Throughout the series, we've been returning to a a focal passage, a key passage. And one final time, I want to read the words of Jesus because Honestly, what we need to experience in the week ahead is described uh, in this passage. And so let me read for you what I trust are now familiar words uh, for us found in John chapter 10, verses 7 through 11. Listen to what Jesus would say. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but The sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, again, I've said throughout, that's highlighting the response. You're responding to Jesus. You're trusting in Jesus. You're turning to Jesus. If anyone enters by me, he, she will be saved, will be rescued, and will, notice, go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his sheep, his life for the sheep. And we've returned to this passage repeatedly because Jesus is laying out for us how each of us might experience life, how he can rescue us. And I've tried to underscore throughout the series that life ultimately is in Jesus Christ. He's the one that is the door. He's the shepherd who seeks to lead us in and out of pasture. Now, if you are with us for the first time today... The whole of our series can be found on our webpage at NorfolkWorth.com. In, in the opening message on, uh, in this series, I discuss everything that these verses describe. But what you need to realize this morning, all of us should appreciate this morning, is that Jesus directs our attention to him and wants us to recognize that life is in him. And so we trust in him, right? We trust in him enough to follow him. And that's critical because if I'm going to experience this life that Jesus makes possible, it's directly related to my willingness to follow his lead. You don't experience the abundant life apart from him. You experience that life that he characterizes as overflowing because you're actively relating to him. Like sheep to a shepherd, you're actively following him in a way that enables him to affect you. He directs life towards you. Now, to help us through the course of the six weeks, I've pointed to one of Jesus' earliest disciples kind of as an object lesson. One of the first men that Jesus called to follow him was a man by the name of Simon. 
And we read through the Gospel of Matthew as a church family and began to think about who Jesus is and began to observe how Jesus related to that particular disciple. In Matthew's Gospel, it describes when Jesus extended the invitation to Simon. Now, he did that, as Matthew describes it, not just Simon alone. He was also asking Simon's brother Andrew and James and John, two of their friends, to join him. But the point I want you to to think about this morning is a time came when Simon clearly decided that he was going to follow Jesus, that he was going to trust Jesus enough to the best of his understanding and follow him. Now, Matthew describes that rather briefly in Matthew 4 and verse 19. Listen to it again, just so that we can hear what Jesus is is inviting them to experience. And Jesus said to them, and he's referring to Simon, Andrew, James, and John. He said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. What I would have you pay attention to in this invitation is the promise that Jesus makes. It's that verbal phrase, I will make you. See, it's one thing for me to recognize Jesus as who he is and say, I'm going to trust in him. It's something else for me to appreciate that as I respond to him, what Jesus commits himself to do is to make me. Now, in this context, he says, I'm going to make you fisher of men. They were fishermen by trade. He's actually pointing to a, a, a transformation of life that would affect them for the better. I will make you, Jesus says. In the language of the New Testament, it's a Greek term, boeo, which actually emphasizes his creative activity. I will create for you what's needed. This Sunday morning, I don't know if you're a new follower or if you've been following Jesus for very long, but what I want you to think about is he has the power to make us. He is the one who brings about this life that we long to know as we trust him and follow him. That is what Jesus asked them to do. Follow me and I will make you. I don't think any person really comes to a point of following Jesus until they've made a a determination of heart that they see that Jesus is worth following. They come to a conviction where they are convinced that he is absolutely worthy of that trust, of that devotion. Now, enough had happened in Simon's mind to begin to follow Jesus initially. What's exciting, if you read with us through the Gospel of Matthew, his understanding of Jesus deepened over time. And that will be true of all of us. I mean, we begin to respond to Jesus initially, and the more that we read and reflect and follow, we begin to understand who he is more fully. That happened with Simon, and we talked about this in one of the earlier lessons. Jesus was asking the disciples kind of at large, who are the people saying that the Son of Man is? And they threw out all these, these various possibilities. But then Jesus looked at that inner circle of disciples and he posed the question to them. Well, who do you say that I am? Simon speaks up. Again, I'm reading from Matthew's account of that experience in Matthew 16. Where Simon replies to the question and says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
Now what's, I think, insightful there is Simon sees that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament promised God would do in providing a rescuer, someone to save. But his spiritual eyes were opened to the realization that as the Messiah, he's also the Son of God. He's God incarnate. Think about the implication of what that means. You're following God incarnate. You are trusting God to affect your life. As our shepherd, you're following his lead with an expectation. He has more than the ability to do what needs to be done for you, right? Why? Because he is God incarnate. There's an account in John's gospel that I think is also instructive. In John 6, uh, just to give you the context, Jesus had performed a miracle where he had fed the 5,000. We know the story, right? Jesus does what no one else can do. He takes a handful of food and then feeds a multitude. Well, the, the crowd initially, because of Jesus meeting their physical need, wanted to make him king, according to John's gospel. And so he quickly tries to disperse the crowd. He sends the disciples across the Sea of Galilee in a boat. We looked at that lesson where it was on that occasion that Jesus further demonstrates his uniqueness where he just kind of takes a walk out on the water. And Simon came to experience Jesus in a new way. But what John goes on to tell us is that when they reached the other side of the lake, the crowd that Jesus had fed the day before had followed them. And they followed them because, you know, they wanted Jesus to make their life easier. I mean, he just gave them food in a way that just was remarkable. And why not just follow him now continuously so that we never have to worry about where our next meal will come from, right? And so they follow Jesus to make their life easier. And John informs us that Jesus tries to confront them with that because, you see, he came not to make one's life easier. He came to affect one's heart, one's mind, one's life itself. And he began to reveal some things about him in a way that made the crowd uncomfortable. So uncomfortable that they began to turn away. Jesus looked at his own disciples and he said, well, everybody else is leaving me. Are you going to leave me too? Listen to what Simon says in response. I'm reading from John 6, verse 68. Again, keep in mind how Simon views Jesus. Simon Peter answers him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now, let me pause there. I asked you to do this earlier in the series. I want you to think about it again this morning. Whenever you see the word eternal in the Bible, eternal life, put your thumb over eternal for just a moment. Because sometimes what we do is when we think about eternal life, all we think about is life in the future. That Jesus is offering to do something good for us in the future. No, that's a, a misunderstanding of the, the beauty of what Jesus is describing. Guess what he's saying? He has the words of life that reach to eternity. Jesus' intention is to affect your life right now. His desire is to affect your heart even today. And the good news is, as he affects us today, it only gets better as we enter into eternity. 
But if you're waiting simply for Jesus to provide something better in the future, then you're stepping short of something he wants you to know in this very hour. Now, Simon recognized there's something in Jesus. You have the words of eternal life, life that touches eternity, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Stay with me. A large number of people turned away from Jesus on that day because he refused to make their life easier. Are you ever tempted to do that? You know, we, we give Jesus our list of requests that, if we're honest, oftentimes it's simply a list of how our life could be made easier if he would do this and this and this and this and this. Can I try to help you this morning to understand what Jesus would teach us? The abundant life is not an easy life. The abundant life is not a comfortable life. If we're going to define the abundant life by these outward circumstances, then we're defining it outside of what the Bible teaches. You want to know what the abundant life is? The abundant life is a life that's discovered as you're relating to the one who is life. He's the good shepherd. He wants to lead you in and out of pasture. He wants you to find life, not in the outward circumstances, but in the relationship that you have with him. And we need to relate to him that way. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't enjoy the activities of life. God created us in ways so that we can have those enjoyments, but life isn't found in those things. Life is found in him. It was always in him. And as we would move into a day, we choose to relate to him as if the words of life are there. Now let me say it still another time. Friends, when we talk about the abundant life, it's not experienced apart from following him. He's not going to send it to you without you relating to him. In actuality, you experience this abundant reality Because you're relating to him. It's the relationship. See, as we look at how we approach our lives day by day, we just need to confess, as I've tried to promote, that life is in Jesus. It's in him. And so I move into a day. I acknowledge this. I read the Bible not to be informed, but to renew my understanding of him. And I discovered it's in him. I'm not insinuating that it's this continuous euphoria. Our emotions rise and fall just as is the nature of life. But we have this stabilizing effect who is Jesus, who then fills the heart even in the midst of these challenging circumstances when we turn to him. Well, is that true also when we fail? Last week, and again, I'm bringing together the different elements of our series, but last week, we looked at Simon's failure, didn't we? I mean, give the man credit. He didn't do anything halfway, and that's certainly true of his failure. I mean, he failed horribly, publicly, and felt the shame of it. But did that mean that Simon could no longer experience life in Jesus? No. No. As we discovered last week, the good shepherd 
comes to those who've turned away and seeks to restore them, doesn't he? And so you're not going to lose out on the abundant life just because you failed, because life is in him. If I will acknowledge my failure, if I will return to the shepherd, guess what? Life can be restored. And even more, last week I made a statement. I want to make it again this morning. Our lives are not to be defined by our failure. Our lives are supposed to be defined by the one we follow, who is Jesus. Now, What's sad is some people choose to continue to follow their failure. They continue to pursue the pattern of, of, of action that led to the regret. And I guess you could then say maybe their life is eventually going to be defined by that. But thankfully, the Lord Jesus chases after us, pursues us, wants to bring us back to a place where we can rediscover him. And when we rediscover him, guess what? Our life is defined in him. I can find my heart full because his forgiveness is real. And as I follow his lead, I can experience the, the dynamic of his presence in my mind and my heart. See, it's defined by who I follow. Or I would carry that statement even further. It's defined not only by who I follow, but who he is making me to be. See, I need to have a vision of where Jesus has taken me. I don't need to live kind of in the picture of my failure. I need to visualize where Jesus is trying to take me as my shepherd. And I want that to define me. I want that to encourage me forward in faith. Jesus would want that for you. He would desire for you to come beyond your failure, whatever it may be, and experience life in him real life. Now, thankfully, as we've looked at Simon's journey, Peter's journey, we realize he figured it out. And the reason we know that isn't simply by, by what's described in John chapter 21. The reason we know that is because of what we discovered, those of you that joined us in our readings, what we discovered in reading Peter's own letters. You learn a lot about a person from what they write down. And Peter wrote two letters to believers across the region so that they could understand faith. And if you participated in our readings, would you agree with me? Simon came to understand that even in failure, Jesus brings life, fullness of life. Now we read through 1 Peter and almost done with 2 Peter. Some of you maybe are wondering, now where are we going next, right? See, I think it's important to read actively from the Bible, particularly the New Testament, because you see, what we want to do is constantly to renew faith in Jesus. We want to refocus. And so what I would recommend, how about this? Why don't you go back and read Matthew again? I do that deliberately because if you're not careful, we fall into the trap where we're always looking for something new. I've got to move on to the next book of the Bible or whatever it may be. No, what we need to do is focus on the shepherd, renew faith in the shepherd, and constantly reflect on what he says. Because he wants to lead us so that we experience life. And so maybe just as a healthy exercise, it would be beneficial to go back and read Matthew again, a chapter a day. As you're reading it, you're asking the Lord Jesus... Uh, to reveal who he is to you, to show you how he would lead you in life, and then even in a special way to, to know how you can interact with the people around you.
It's just my suggestion. If you have to move on to a new book, go ahead and move into Mark. Why don't you read some more about Jesus in Mark's gospel? But Peter, as I, going back to Peter, he experienced failure. He heard and experienced the life of Jesus. And when you come to his letters, he, he talks about it in a way that's beneficial. If you didn't happen to read it, let me read a portion out of chapter 1 and see if I can illustrate how Simon continued to grow in his understanding of the Good Shepherd, how he should relate to Jesus. Listen to what's recorded beginning in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, starting with verse 3. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Does it sound like his heart is full? I think so. It starts with a kind of a testimony of praise. Then he goes on. According to his great mercy. Not just mercy, mind you. Great mercy. He has caused us to be born again. To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Whenever I see the phrase born again, that's an encouraging description for us. See, it's Jesus that introduces that, that language. Jesus, in John 3, was talking to a religious man by the name of Nicodemus. If you've ever tried the religious approach to life, it's not very satisfying. You know, rule keeping doesn't really do a whole lot to fill the heart. But discovering life in Jesus does. And so Jesus is talking to this man, and he says, now, what you need to experience is a spiritual birth. You need a birth from above. You need to experience life. As they talk about it, Jesus just lays out how that's, how that's possible. You know the verse. He says, well, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Believe in me, Nicodemus. Well, here Simon writes, and he says, listen, we've experienced mercy because he's enabled us to experience that spiritual life, that new beginning because of Jesus. And then he even speaks to the future, verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Is anybody in the room a little nervous about the future? As a believer, Simon's trying to say, we should have in our mind a clear understanding ultimately what's the future holds for us. And it's an inheritance because of Jesus Christ, because of this faith. He goes on to add, who, verse 5, by God's power are being guarded. The verb there is emphasized kind of a continual state of being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, when I read that, I thought to myself, I'm being guarded. As a believer, I, God's guarding me. Now, you want to personalize that? Who is guarding you? I think Jesus would say he is. He's the good shepherd, right? What does the good shepherd do for the flock? He shields them. He protects them. He secures them. Now, don't take my word for it. Listen to what Jesus says in John 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. And they, there it is, always there, follow me. I give them 
life that reaches to eternity, eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. You tell me who's watching over you if you've trusted in Jesus Christ. See, Jesus assumes that responsibility. He's taken hold of our lives, right? Our hearts should be comforted by that. Certainly, Peter's heart was lifted by that. He goes on in verse 6 then to say, In this you rejoice, though for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Hold on there, what? I'm in his care, he's watching over me, and I still have trials? Did you see that? See, I don't know why sometimes as Christians we presume that as I follow Jesus, life is easy, life is simple, life is comfortable. No, life is challenging. Whether you know the shepherd or not, I would simply argue you're in a better position given the challenges of life to be under the shepherd's care. And that's what Simon is saying. Listen, it doesn't protect you from ever experiencing trial. In fact, there will be some occasions where you experience trial because you're following him. But here's the good news, and this is what Simon tries to explain. This is actually an opportunity for us to experience more of him. Verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, that this difficulty isn't going to rob me of life. It's going to kind of refine my faith so that I experience even a, a more dramatic, glorious manifestation in the future. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Now, if you weren't with us last Sunday, following Simon's embarrassing failure, the one question Jesus asked Simon three times was, do you love me? He didn't ask, will you try harder? He didn't ask for excuses. He simply said, will you relate to me for who I am now? Do you love me? I can't help but wonder, as Simon now is writing to us, he says, listen, though you have never seen him like I did, your life, though, is also being affected in the same way that my heart was affected. You do what you do because you love him. That's why you follow him. I mentioned before, friends, it's not about keeping rules. Don't live your life as a so-called Christian by being a rule keeper. Life isn't in that. Live your life as a follower of Jesus. See, it's relationship focused. And so as I follow his lead, it's in that act that the presence of the Lord is permitted to awaken in my mind and my heart a, a deeper awareness of him. It's always relational, and that's why I think Simon is saying, listen, you've not seen him, but you love him. And then he goes on, though you do not... Now see him, you believe in him, and rejoice with joy 
that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Does that sound like abundant living to you? That Jesus manifests that? Obtaining, he closes the thought, the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Simon is trying to point you, he's trying to point me to experience the same life he experienced. As we relate to Jesus for who he is and trust him enough to follow him as we love him day by day. If you read on in the first Peter, you realize Simon wants Jesus to so affect our lives that we see ourselves in relationship to him. That's our, our identity, our privilege is totally revolving around who he is. Is that how you see yourself? Do you see Jesus as just kind of an additive to your life or is he the source of life? And you relate to him as if that's true. Before I close, let me give you one more example of where Simon would try to point us. It's also in 1 Peter. It's actually in chapter 2. He's writing to those who believed in him. Okay, this is important. We've trusted in him. But now he's trying to portray the privilege that's ours. He tries to define for us our identity because of him. And listen to what he says in verses 9 and 10. If you're a believer, this is now being said of you. You are, Peter writes, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are. God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have, you have received mercy. See, Simon, in a summary way, drawing from Old Testament imagery, tries to help you redefine how you view yourself because of Jesus. I mean, we live in a culture that increasingly wants to define one's identity based on one's weaknesses or one's preferences or one's passions, where Simon is saying, you know, the way that you need to define yourself is because of how you relate to the one who is the shepherd, how he defines your life. And what does Simon say is true of you if you've related to Jesus as Savior? He says, first of all, you're a part descriptively of a, a chosen race. And I would highlight the word chosen because what's fascinating, some people get distracted by the mystery of how God chooses this or that. I would rather celebrate the knowledge that the Bible teaches, he knows everything about me, past, present, future. And if I've responded to him, guess what? He chose me anyway. In other words, he knew my worst moments and as the good shepherd who laid down his life for me, he still chose me, called me to believe, to trust, to respond. I'm encouraged to know that he sees me in my worst and still calls me to follow. Not just a chosen race. He says you're part of a royal priesthood. In priesthood, just think primarily of access. Why did he rescue you so that you could now relate to him? He's made you a part of this Unique group of royal priests. He's the king. He's the high priest. He's both and. And because of our trust in him, we can 
serve him, have access to him. He also says we're a holy nation. There the word that I would underscore is the word holy. He set us apart as a people group so that we would experience life from him. And as we relate to him for who he is, we experience that life. As we ignore that spiritual dimension, then that life is diminished within us. But he made us to be this holy people, this holy nation. And then finally, he says, you're a people of God's own possession. That probably is my favorite expression because what Simon is saying, everything that God did, he did to cherish you, to sustain you, to bless you. Doesn't mean that you're not going to have hardship, but it does mean he's going to meet you and affect you inwardly because of his son, Jesus Christ. Did any of us deserve this? No. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, we didn't earn this, but by God's love and grace, we have come to experience it as we trust in Jesus. Have you done that? What is your story? Final thought. As Simon is dealing with this, describing for us our identity, did you hear what he asked us to to do in response? In essence, he's saying you shouldn't keep what you've experienced a secret, right? I mean, if I'm following the one whose life and he's affecting my life in ways that are real, then I should probably acknowledge that. How did Peter phrase it that you, speaking to those who are experienced this, may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That out of the overflow of this life experience, we just begin to talk about that. Or we should. None of our stories are the same, but all of us do have a story that probably should be shared in ways that we're able. See, but again, I'm, I'm not good with words. Remember early in the series, I said, you know, there are three basic questions that could guide any person in sharing their story. First of all, what led me to believe something happened in your life that opened your eyes to the truth of Jesus? What was that? And then how did you respond to him? I mean, in some way you responded to him, right? But when you talk about a story, I think the most equally important element of that story is in how are you relating to him now? I mean, if you took these questions and just wrote a sentence or two in response to each of them, do you realize what you've done is you've put together your story so that as you're moving through life, I'm not suggesting that you preach on the street corner or you climb up on your desk at work. I'm simply saying as you're following Jesus day by day, you're then asking Jesus, give me an opportunity to share my story with somebody in a way that's appropriate, in a way that's meaningful. Could you do that? I came back from my sabbatical a little bit early in the end of September because one of our church members, longtime church member, passed away. Her name was Loma Likens. Uh, Loma helped raise me up in this church. I was blessed by her life as a child. But she went home to be with Jesus Christ. And 
The family asked me to do their service, and I was, my heart was so encouraged as the family provided me some of what she wrote down. You know what she wrote down for my benefit? Her faith story. She described how she trusted in Jesus as her Savior so that I could then turn and pass that encouraging testimony on to her two sons. Of course, they already knew that, but I was struck by the fact that she took the time to write it out. And the reason that stands out to me, because there have been a lot of occasions where I've come alongside of a family in the midst of their loss, and I will always ask a family, could you share with me your mom, your dad's, your sibling's story of faith? Now, oftentimes they can, but there are occasions where those who were closest to them had never heard them share their story. Does that not surprise you? Again, I'm not saying you share your faith story with some random stranger. Shouldn't you at the very least be willing to share your journey with the shepherd, with someone who's close by? You would think that would be reasonable. Now, I mentioned Loma did that. Her husband, Lucky, passed away earlier uh, this same year. Lucky did the same thing. I had both of their testimonies written out for me. And we say, why are you sharing this? Because I want us not only to benefit from the life that comes from Jesus, I want us to be willing to, to share what we know, that we don't hide that, we don't keep that secret, and at the very least, we should be sharing that with those that are in that inner circle of relationship, shouldn't we? Here, let me give you a challenge, and I'm not trying to guilt anyone, but I want you to think about this. Thanksgiving is what, two weeks away? I don't know what your typical Thanksgiving experience is like. I'm assuming it involves a good meal and maybe a good or bad experience watching the Cowboys. I don't know. But what if, as you look at Thanksgiving just a couple of weeks away, what if you took these questions and you just put some sentences down so that you focus it in your own mind? And when you gather with your family and those that you consider close, what if you said, would it be all right? I'd like to do something I've not done before. In this season of Thanksgiving, I want to share with you my story of faith. What led me to believe in Jesus, how I responded to him, but I'm pleased to add how I continue to relate to Jesus right now and the difference that he makes. Is that too hard for us? I have to work up to that. Well, would you pray about it? For the next couple of weeks, pray, you know, Lord, is this something I could do so that those that are closest to me hear my story? Maybe some are hesitant to say yes to that because you're hesitant about your story you're not sure that you have responded. Well, maybe this whole series has come about to bring that into focus for you so that today you decide that now is the time to believe Jesus enough to follow him, trust him, relate to him. Let me pray for us. Would you bow your head? Dear God, I'm grateful for the attentiveness of every person here as we've touched on so many different elements to this series. 
But our longing right now is for it to bring us forward, to do something that affects who we are in life, that we might relate to Jesus more personally, trust in Jesus more fully. Father, if there's somebody here who's never responded to Jesus as the one who can give life, I pray before this final song concludes that they will make that decision and they will choose to believe. Holy Spirit of God, appeal to our hearts so that we can respond in ways where we experience the life that you make possible. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.